to you. From God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now there's a story behind the Palm Sunday story that really helps to give it even more significance. It takes place in the same city, Jerusalem, some 200 years or so before this morning's lesson. Israel had been an occupied country back then, too. This time by the Seleucids, a kind of Greek-Syrian dynasty descended from a general in the army of Alexander the Great. They just overrun Egypt for the second time, driving their armies all the way back to Alexandria. But before the Syrian leader Antiochus could deliver the killing blow, he was met by a Roman consul named Gaius Popilius Linus, who had been sent there from Rome to end that war. He demanded the withdrawal of all the Syrian troops. Now, when Antiochus said he'd have to discuss it first with his council, the Roman is said to have drawn a circle around him in the sand, warning that before he crossed that circle, he'd better give an answer that Gaius could take back to the Roman Senate. The implication that unless the Syrian forces withdrew immediately, they would find themselves at war with Rome. Discretion being the better part of valor, Antiochus consents. You can imagine the mood of his forces, though, as they headed back toward home with their tail between their legs. In a spirit of revenge, Antiochus orders an expedition against Jerusalem. He looted the temple, ordered the suspension of all the Jewish laws, including the practice of their religion. The Syrians built a new altar in the temple, which they dedicated to Zeus, and they sacrificed pigs there. And nothing could have offended the Jews more. Some Jews stayed in the city, embracing the advantages of a Hellenistic culture, but most of them fled the surrounding towns and villages. And thus began a sort of uh, a rebel guerrilla movement led by a man named Judas Maccabees, also known as the Hammer. Against all odds, he successfully raided villages that were sympathetic to the Syrian cause. He tore down pagan altars. And after three years uh, of success in the countryside, uh, he had an army, and he was ready to try and retake the temple. Well, miraculously, he did. And the eight-day celebration that followed is what Hanukkah is all about. Now, the hammer was more your conquering hero on a white horse kind of guy. The battle was far from over, but eventually a new Syrian leader arose with a compromise that everyone could live with. Okay, so today it's about two centuries later when another savior rides into Jerusalem. He too had grown up in an occupied Israel, this time by Roman soldiers and a Roman governor. For the most part, life under Roman rule wasn't all that bad, not when you compare it with some of the times they'd been conquered before and Jerusalem had been invaded and conquered. Josephus tells us something like six or eight times. So Governor Pontius Pilate, you know, even if it's easier though, uh, they were still occupied, right? The, the governor, Pontius Pilate, had continued to offend Jewish sensibilities. Uh, protests, uh, violent riots had broken out. People had died. Uh, Pilate, too, raided the temple treasury, but this time it was for funds to build an aqueduct to bring additional water into the city. They had more freedom of worship, and, and they had some measure of self-rule in religious matters, but this only gave the, the Jewish religious leaders an opportunity to establish themselves in positions of power. And they used it. They wielded God's law like a club. And for some time now, people had been looking for the next savior. 
The Palm Sunday triumphal entry story really begins as Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem. As he approaches Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he tells two of his disciples, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back immediately. Well, the disciples wondered, you know, must have wondered what that was all about because nowhere else in the Bible is Jesus ever mentioned riding an animal to get from one place to another. He must have walked hundreds of miles up and down the Holy Land. But the only, as far as we know anyway, the only ride he ever got was in a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This ride on the back of a young donkey sounds sort of strange to us, almost like a first-class passenger having to ride in coach. But to the people who witnessed it, there was nothing unusual about it at all. A conqueror would arrive on the back of a warhorse, um, but, but uh, not a peaceful king. And so they understood that Jesus was declaring himself to be a king, but more in the manner of uh, Solomon. When, when David's son Solomon succeeded him on the throne, uh, that king didn't arrive on a warhorse. He arrived on the back of a donkey, just like Jesus. And, and it symbolized that peace prevailed in the land. The question was, how would the people respond? You know, would they finally recognize that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world? You know, for three and a half years now, he'd been trying to explain that to them, but there was little evidence that they would suddenly understand this concept of a spiritual kingdom. It was more like they would be, maybe he would be met with laughter. I mean, what a picture it must have presented to them. Uh, he was a carpenter before he was a preacher. And now this carpenter from Nazareth is, is uh, declaring himself king. You know, people might have wondered, maybe he spent too much time in the hot sun. But they wouldn't all be laughing. Certainly there would be people there who would greet him with anger, who would see his arrival as a, an affront to God, as blasphemy. And we know there are also those who hailed him with joy, welcoming him as an earthly king come to reestablish the throne of David and overthrow the Roman Empire with his miraculous powers. And they couldn't wait to place a crown on his head. Among those watching would certainly have been some of those he'd healed, probably some from among the 5,000 that, that Jesus fed in one of his greatest miracles. Others who'd been witness to other miracles and still more who'd heard him teach with that special, unique kind of authority that he had. People who had listened to his message and it had changed their lives forever. Jesus knew all this. He also knew that just over the next hill loomed the cross, but he wouldn't be dissuaded. The closer Jesus got to the city, the larger the crowds became. There was an air of festivity about the whole thing, perhaps in part because so many pilgrims had come to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. Even before Jesus arrives, news has spread that, that he just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Imagine the buzz of the crowd as that story raced on ahead of the procession. Even before Jesus arrives. Have you heard? Lazarus died. And his body lay in the tomb long enough to begun decaying. But this teacher, this Jesus, stood outside the tomb and he called for the dead man to come out. And he did come out. And they removed his grave clothes and he breathes again. He's alive. Surely only the Messiah, the Son of God, could do that. As the excitement built in anticipation of Jesus' arrival, the crowds began lining the road on the, on the way into the city. Great crowds. 
And as was customary at a victory celebration, they cut palm branches to wave, to place on the road before him. Jesus may have been traveling coach, but he was about to get a first-class reception. Think of the faces that Jesus would see in that crowd after three and a half years of ministry. Faces of people who loved him. People like Bartimaeus, a man who had received his sight. No longer would he have to beg. Or maybe Zacchaeus, a little tax collector who had paid back his debt to society and made peace with God. And the lepers. Surely those whose skin had been cleansed would be there rejoicing in the healing they they received. At least we know for sure one. Maybe you'd see Jairus' daughter back among the living, thanks to Jesus, after tasting death herself. And of course, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, uh, their lives were living testimonies to the power of God to change lives. But along with the friendly and the familiar, there would surely be other not-so-friendly faces tucked among those happy crowds, faces that wouldn't be smiling, faces that were, were watching for Jesus to say or do just one wrong thing. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, for one, the keepers of the law and the people's spiritual leaders. You know, Jesus' astounding popularity had threatened their own authority, filled with with, uh, anger and envy. They watched. They listened. Surely Roman soldiers would be there, a little anxious maybe at the size of the crowds, but determined to keep order, always on the alert for signs of rebellion against the empire. As Jesus looks across the city from the Mount of Olives, he knows only too well that in addition to those people there today shouting, Hosanna, save us, there'd be another crowd crying out, crucify him by week's end. We imagine the disciples were feeling. Now, Judas would have been all too happy to embrace an earthly kingdom, so he was probably ecstatic. Uh, Or Peter, who had risen from humble beginnings to a place of some importance among the apostles. You know, I think Peter would have enjoyed the recognition, the crowds, you know, feeling like, well, it's about time. You can almost picture him watching, walking alongside Jesus, his chest thrust out in pride. Perhaps maybe one hand on his sword, just in case. He may have finally felt that leaving his little fishing business behind was all going to be worth it. You suppose Thomas would have would have uh, found this this reception a little hard to believe. Might he be wondering what could happen next? Andrew was used to bringing people to Jesus one at a time, or in small groups. This all must have been a little overwhelming for him. And James and John, do you think they were already thinking ahead to the moment when Jesus would receive his crown so that they could take their place at his right and his left? They were all there. Faces in the crowd. Loving faces, angry, dark, sinister faces. And all the apostles, the crowd, you know, growing by the minute, when all of a sudden things come to a grinding halt. The whole procession just stopped dead in its tracks. You can imagine questions of the people in the back of the crowd, you know, peering on tiptoes to see what happened. What's the holdup? What's going on? Well, the people, people closest to Jesus already knew. They could see. It was Jesus himself who stopped the parade. They stared from behind as his body began to tremble. They watched as he put his face in his his hands. And they realized that Jesus was crying. Luke's Gospel tells us that as he looked across the valley at Jerusalem, 
He wept over it. If you, he said, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. The Bible tells us of only two times that Jesus wept. Once when he shared the grief of Mary and Martha at the loss of his friend Lazarus, and this was the second time. It tells us that Jesus understands our grief, that he feels our hurts, and he has compassion on us. He looked at the crowds waiting for him, and he saw the emptiness in their lives, an emptiness that he'd come to fill, but they didn't understand. They had eyes, they had ears, but they didn't see. They didn't hear. They'd missed the whole point of God's message to them. The very fact that they were waving palm branches showed that they didn't understand. That was exactly what they did when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppressors and reestablished worship in the temple during the time between the Old and the New Testaments. Their palm branches showed that they expected Jesus to be another warlord, another general to raise up and lead armies, but uh, this time against Rome. They were showing him that they were uh, ready to lay down their palms and pick up their swords to follow him. But he hadn't come to lead a battle against Rome, had he? He'd come to show them a way of love. He said, love your enemies and pray for them. He said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Now the good people who heard those words must have thought, well, those are pretty words, but you can't mean we're supposed to love the Romans. It's clearly one of our own wouldn't expect us to love Rome. We can't love Rome. But that's exactly what he was saying. Love even Rome. She already knows the power of the sword, but she doesn't yet know the power of love. You know, show them love. And the nation of Israel had the opportunity to show the Romans something new and different. But because they didn't understand Jesus, they really failed to see the whole purpose of his mission, and that opportunity would be taken away, and they'd never have it again. They knew they were God's people, his chosen ones. He'd led them out of Egypt all through the wilderness, through the good times and the bad, all the way to the promised land. But they didn't recognize the promised Messiah, even when he stood right in their midst. And Jesus wept. He'd seen their future, less than a generation away. The, the army of the, the Roman general Titus surrounding the city, waiting for the people behind the, the walls to either starve to death or surrender. Jesus saw the magnificent temple torn down, stone by stone, along with the entire city. He saw bodies and blood in the streets, all because they didn't recognize the Messiah. And he wept for them. Matthew adds, Jesus laments, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not come. And so we enter worship today with the crowd so long ago, you know, waving palm branches and welcoming the new king. And today, just like Jerusalem so long ago, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus, the Christ. 
I wonder what he finds when he looks into our faces. Does he see people who are so worried about taxes or work or their health that it consumes us, filling our lives to the exception of everything else, even things of eternal importance? Or does he see people who recognize him for who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God? When he turns his face towards us this morning, will it bring him joy? Will we look forward to the day that he can uh, say to us with outstretched arms, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will he weep again, remembering when his arms were stretched out on a cross for people who've forgotten why? So as we move beyond Jesus' triumphal entry this morning to the upper room on Thursday and then the foot of the cross on Friday, and finally to stand before the empty tomb on Sunday morning. May it be a time to draw you closer to your only deep Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's take a moment.